Any of you guys fly often, three or four times a year or more, a couple people? I'm probably three or four times a year. And and there used to be Southwest for me. If if Southwest was going someplace that I was going, which they had a more limited market, I I was always looking at Southwest because of the price. It It was cheaper. Southwest was so different than all the other airlines, and, and, and in some ways they still are. Money-wise, they're really not. They're about comparable now, but it, it is very different. You fly Southwest, you know, if, if you've done this, you know, you don't, you don't have a seat, right? You know, it, you want to get on 24 hours early so you can get boarding quicker, so you're not sitting, you know, on the toilet in the back for your four-hour flight. Or, you know, so it's just kind of, it's first come, first serve. Um, which isn't for me necessarily a great thing, but some of the good things are, you know, you don't pay baggage, baggage fees, and that, that's nice. But one of the cool things, what I love about Southwest is the culture of the people that work for them. Um, and I know it's not always the case, and there's some people in other airlines that are great, but uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in Oakland, and I was flying back to Austin, and my, my, my flight was going from Oakland to San Diego, San Diego to Austin, and my Oakland flight leaving got postponed. Now, according to the, the, the time schedule, I was still going to land in San Diego in time to make my connecting flight. But it was just going to be about 30, I was going to have like 45 minutes instead of an hour and 15 minutes. So I went up to one of the ladies that works there at, at one of the counters in the Southwest Terminal and just explained to her, you know, hey, here's my dilemma. And she looks at it and she goes, well, you're going to make it. And I said, I realize that at this moment, I'm going to make it. But if there's any more delays or if something else happens, I was on kind of the last flight out from the West Coast home. I said, if anything else happens, man, I'm just nervous that, you know, it may not happen. Is there, is there any other options? And she started looking. She said, well, actually, I could fly you to Denver, and then you could fly from Denver to Austin, and you're going to get, uh, you're going to get home even an hour earlier. And I was like, oh, man, that would be fantastic, because I was supposed to land right around midnight. So you'll, you'll land at like 11 p.m. And I said, great. And she said, now, do you have bags? And I said, yes, I've already, I've already checked them. I've, I've already put them in. They've already put the tag on them. They're sending them to San Diego. And, and she said, well, you know, the problem is your bags are going to go to San Diego and then to Austin. And when they get to Austin at midnight and you got there at 11, you, now you're just waiting an hour for your bags. That doesn't make any sense. I said, no, that doesn't make any sense. So she picks up the, the walkie-talkie. She starts calling people, talking to people, explaining what's going to happen. And uh, she says, okay, I've got your, I've got your flight switched. And I've, I've got confirmation. They've got, uh, they have found your bags, and they are going to move your bags over to your other flight. She said, you need to go on down to your new gate, and uh, everything's good. So I go down to my new gate about 15 minutes later. They, they buzz me. I come over to that gate because they've said, you know, is Brett Levi I come to the you know, desk? And I come up to the desk, and I'm thinking, oh, man, something went wrong. And they said, oh, the lady from down the way uh, asked, asked us to tell you that she has confirmed that they not only found your bags, but they've got them loaded on the right plane, so you are 100% good to go. I said, man, I like this lady. Like, you know, right? I mean, I, I know that I'm good, and I told Amanda, I'm texting her going, I don't know kind of what the deal is. I mean, it was just that, that customer service that, and, and again, I'm sure there are some, some customer service people with Southwest that aren't great, and there's some great ones with, with other airlines, but I just felt like it was kind of that extra mile. Then you see things, and, and there's all kinds of things on YouTube. I just brought one for you. This is different. I've experienced things like this on multiple Southwest flights. I'm going to show you a video that I've never experienced on anything else. So watch this video. When you're traveling, it's it's fairly easy to identify a culture difference and even behavioral differences between 
somebody that works for that airline and somebody that works for another airline. And that, that idea is what we've been walking through for the last two weeks, and this will be week three. The series that we have all around us, what's the difference? There should be something different between a person who's following Jesus and somebody who's not. We, we ought to be able to look and go, hey, they are, they are different. They act different. They, they love differently. They, they treat people differently. They, a person who follows Jesus looks very unique. Two weeks ago, we talked about decision-making. And we said one of the things that makes a believer different or should make a believer different is how we make differences. A regular person who's not following Jesus understandably makes decisions that go, when I'm making a decision, what is best for me? But as a follower of Jesus, we said we ought to look different. We ought to be, we ought to be processing our decisions through the grid of what brings the most glory to God. If I do this or do that, what brings glory to God is more important than what makes me happy or what, what puts me into a, a better position. And then this past week, what our students are talking about down the hallway, we talked about time. We talked about how, how, how time is this commodity that disappears and we never get more of it. And we said as a believer, what's different for us is a believer should see, see time through a lens that says time is a kingdom commodity. It's something that God has given me to help bring the kingdom of God here. My time isn't here for me. My time isn't meant to waste. My time uh, isn't even meant to create great experiences. My time is this gift of God to help his purposes and what he's called me to do come to fruition. And I'll tell you what, if we made decisions that way and if we used our time that way, we would be a, a, a people as followers of Jesus that the world would look at and go, man, there's something different about them. And so this morning as we close up this series we hit a difference that really should be probably the, the easiest. It should probably be the one that, that most of us, our, our minds go to right away. And it's this, if, if I'm a follower of Jesus, the way that I treat other people should look markedly different than the rest of the world. I mean, we talk about this all the time here, that we're to love God, to love people, that's what we're talking about, and to help others do the same. So if I'm a believer, the way I treat my neighbors, the way I treat my family, the way I treat the people I work with, the way I treat people that I go to church with, the way that I treat people in the grocery store, at the movie theaters, we're driving down I-35, I should look markedly different than somebody who's not following Jesus because I've said that I'm going to bow my will, I'm going to submit myself to a, a higher authority, God, the Creator, than the rest of the world who said, I, I'm going to submit my life maybe to a higher authority like a government, or really the way that we, we, we live, the highest authority that we submit to is, is myself. And so I, I ought to look really different. But let, so let me, let me tell you this, because I don't, I don't want you to be blown away. I love, I love when we have the opportunity to talk on Sunday mornings, things like that. I love to make you laugh. I really do. I love... I love, as a communicator, when you guys start laughing, defenses come down, we're having fun. But some of the places we're going to go this morning, I don't, I don't know if you're going to laugh. In fact, I'm going to say some things as we go into Romans 12 and as we talk about how it applies. I'm going to say some things I guarantee that will make some of you angry. So I'll tell you up front. I also want to tell you this. As I've been preparing for this morning and for this week to talk with students, I've never felt more hypocritical about a message in, in, in my memory that I can remember. Now, when I get and talk about time, my, my time is not, I mean, please don't, don't go, well, if we're going to use our time for kingdom purposes, we need to do what Brett does, because Brett's not really good at that either. 
And Brett's not always good at making decisions to bring glory to God rather than glory to self. I mean, almost everything I talk about, there's, there's areas that, that the Lord is working in me to make me more like him. But I felt like as I got ready for this morning, we talk about loving people. Like I, I had these moments of like, maybe I'll just preach something different. Because, because people who know me well are going to go, hey, wow, you're like home run with a hypocrite, you know, this way, capital H, you're doing, you don't do any of the things you're talking about. And, I, and I'm going to tell you this because some of the things that are going to make you mad that I'm going to say, I might actually be closer to you in your anger than I want to be. And so I want you to understand that, that we're looking at God's word this morning. I want you every time. I don't want you to hear my opinions or my thoughts. I want us to go into Romans 12 in a moment and really just hear what God has to say to us. Because what I want to suggest to you is that while loving people seems like it should be easy, it's not. It's really not. And you think about the people who should be the easiest for us to love. That should be our family, right? I mean, your children, moms, you birth them out of your body. Or if you didn't, if they're not your birth children, you, you adopted them. You went and said, man, I'm going to go through all the legal things to adopt them. Or, or you fell in, in love so much with somebody who brought kids to your marriage that you said, you, you made a decision. I love this person so much that, that when they bring their kids into my family, I'm willing to have my life readjusted around them. Those are people we've made decisions to love. But in reality, who are the people that we tend to treat worse than anyone else? Our family, right? And, and, and there, there's a reason why. Because for most of us, and this isn't true of every family, but for most of us, we walk into a family and we know that, that our, our kids and our, and our spouse are going to cut us way more slack than everybody else. So, you know, we know that our spouse, they made a promise before God and man to, you know, at, at a wedding to, to, to love us without end. And so we go, you know what, they're, they're, they're going to let me off a little more. So while I'm at work, I'm on my best behavior, and I don't snap, and I don't act angry, and I don't let the frustration cause me to yell at the guy next to me that human resources are going to come in and fire me. So I'm going to go home, and I'm going to find out that my kids did something mildly dumb for the day, and I'm going to explode all over them because I've brought this baggage from work with me. But we don't really, we don't really let it bother us because we know that, that there's going to be good times to follow the bad times because we're a family, because, because we're committed to each other. And again, that's not, that's not every family. I understand that. But for some of us, we go in and we, we don't try nearly as hard with our family as we do with our friends. And we talk about this as a joke because everybody's experienced it, right? I mean, for some of us, it happened this morning, yelling and screaming this morning and get in the car and I cannot believe you did this. And we're fighting all the way here. And we pull in the parking lot and we're like, hey, brother, how are you today? <laughs> Good, yes. Uh, I've had a great week. Yeah, I, um, I read through the New Testament on Thursday. It was a fantastic. And how, how's your walk, brother? You know, and our kids are like, what in the crap just happened? Like, <laughs> I, I think my dad just cussed me out in the car, and now he's like talking to the pastor and hugging it, you know. And, and, and so it, we do those things, and, and we, we don't want to. Here's something that has stuck with me, and I don't know where I read it or somebody told me, but you know, you have some things that people said along the way that you go, I will never forget that. Uh, one of the things I say all the time is we are to be unto our children as God is to us. Man, that's a parenting principle somebody gave I've never forgotten. Here's something else somebody told me I wish I knew to give credit to. They said, you are never more like Jesus than you are inside your home. Your, your discipleship journey, your spiritual maturity is not, you're not as spiritually mature as you are at church or at the office. 
your spiritual maturity is gauged by your discipled path with your family and at home. Because that, that's where the curtain is drawn back. That's where, that's where light shines in and exposes. And, and, and so if, 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 if at home, we're not doing a really good job of following Jesus, but out in public, we are, then here's the truth. You're not a really good follower of Jesus because the home exposes those things. And for some reason, we're supposed to love people. We're supposed to look markedly different how we treat people, but at home, we don't. That's what I'm saying. It's hard. It's hard to do this. We don't do it well at home. For me, like with my friends, like if you know me well, you know this, like if, if spiritual, if there was a spiritual gift of sarcasm, I would have it. I mean, it's not. There's nowhere in the scripture but if it was, I mean, I, I'm better at sarcasm than I am at the things that God gifted me to do. And so, and, I, and I, again, I said earlier, I love to make people laugh. You put those things together, and, and I'll be honest, this is why I feel like a hypocrite, because a lot of people in the world, or even people I know, would go, you don't look markedly different than the people. In fact, I think you may be meaner than the people that don't follow Jesus. And that's, that is a burden, something that I, that I wrestle with. And I find myself like, you know, it, unfortunately, it, it never, never stops in the moment. It's, you know, afterwards when you're like reading the word later and you're like, ah, yeah, I'm still a loser, you know, 20 years after starting this journey of not being this way. For me, I have high expectations of myself, very high expectations. I'm a driven type personality. I have also then because of high expectations of other people. And I'm also more justice-oriented than grace-oriented. That, that's, a, that's a dangerous combination, because when I have people that I expect highly of, expect them to perform to here because I expect myself to perform here, when they don't perform to that level, it's very easy for me to go, well, you know what, I'm going to wash my hands of you. Because you didn't, you didn't do things the way I wanted you to. Even, even friends. That's not, that's, not, that's not markedly different how we love people. And so I guess I struggle with this. Or social media, I mean, for the love. Especially in a political season, like, like, I'm a, like I, I am not a very political person. There's some things that I get you know, passionate about, but I, I don't watch Fox News or CNN. I don't, I don't read things. I mean, literally, like, two or three weeks ago is when I found out who Hillary's vice presidential nominee was. I, I, didn't, I don't follow that type of stuff. I, and so when, when people are posting things, I, I don't usually jump in because of political things. I, I, I get drawn in, not like in politics, I get drawn into stupidity, like, it's not, it's not the point that the person wants to argue. They can, they can believe something different than me, but when they, when they argue it from a point that makes, from a stage that makes no logical sense whatsoever, you go, I believe this because of that, and I read it and I go, that's, oh, bless your heart, that doesn't even make sense. Like, that, that's dumb. Then I, I feel this, like, draw, like, I feel like I should let them know that. <laughs> like, it's my civic duty. Somebody had a meme on Facebook or something the other day that said, just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean you have to post on Facebook about it. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, but I mean, I just, I just, again, it's not the politics. It's like, well, that doesn't even make any sense. Let me explain to you why you need to make a better argument. And, but all of those things get drawn in, and then you go, do, do people look at us and, and really believe that as a follower of Jesus that we look any, any way, shape, or form different than anybody else? And then it gets more difficult. We're going to get to Romans 12 here real quickly. It gets more difficult when you have to figure out how do I love somebody and how do I speak truth into their life because I love them when they don't want to hear it. I got a friend, 
grew up with in college. Not grew up with his kid, went to college together. And uh, very, very close friends. And we kind of went different ways because I'm just the way life took us. But we, we stayed in contact some. Uh, he, he even came down this area one time. He's taking his son to a Boy Scout camp. And we met at Dairy Queen just to, to catch up and talk. So I have this friend, and he, is, uh, he had been married and divorced and then remarried again. And he's serving in a church where a friend of mine is the youth minister. And so the youth minister friend and I are talking. We realize, hey, we've got this person in common. Uh, my college buddy, they've got kids in the youth group. He's parents uh, of the church. And, and so we just kind of start talking about it. He's filling me in. And I start hearing some stories about this, this family system that my friend is in, he and, and his spouse. And the youth minister is telling me some things that are like kind of red flags. There's some things that I'm going, oh, wow, man, that's, that seems kind of dangerous. And just kind of their relationship and how things were happening. And so we had that conversation, and about three months later, my, my buddy from college calls me. He doesn't know that I've had this conversation. He doesn't know I have this backstory. And as he starts talking to me, man, he's saying, man, I need to talk to you about this. And, and he said, my wife wanted me to call you and tell you this, and she wants me to tell you this, and she wants me to tell you that, and she wants me to tell you this. And I can hear her in the background talking, tell, and you tell him this, and you tell him that. And, and he's giving me all these things, like this confession of things. And it wasn't like, there wasn't infidelity or anything like that. But what I started hearing on the phone validated all the things about this relationship that the youth minister friend had told me. And so now I'm listening to what he's saying, but I feel like I have the bigger picture. And what he's telling me is that he, I'm, he's going, I'm at fault and I'm at fault and I'm at fault. But I'm listening to the story and going, well, no, no, you're not at fault. You're both at fault. There's some things in this marriage that, yes, you need to correct but I'm hearing some things behind you over the phone that's telling me, as well as the, the words I heard from this objective source, that, that she's got some things that she's got to fix too, that you guys are not going to have this marriage healthy unless you both admit that there's some things that you need to work on. Who, who tells someone that other than a friend? And so, and I did it very gracefully, very lovingly, said, hey, here's what I'm hearing, here's what I'm seeing, and started to say, hey, there, there's... You both need to work on it. Last time I ever talked to him. Most nothing to do with me. I, I, I don't know the whole situation. But I, can, I can guarantee you this. I don't need to know the whole situation. In any marital conflict, there's fault on both sides. I mean, it's always that. I mean, there's always something. Even if it's 99% and 1%, there's something that could be done different. But because truth was spoken and he didn't want to hear it, that relationship ended. And so we struggle. We go, well, how do I love people? How, how do I look markedly different in a world that wants to discuss topics like Clinton and Trump, that wants to discuss topics like homosexuality, that wants to discuss topics like racism, that wants to discuss topics like abortion and gender identity? How, how do I speak truth when I know the scripture has spoken very clearly about some of those things? How do I speak truth to someone lovingly? Not because I want to win an argument, but because I care about them and I want them to see what God's plan is for their life. How do I do that when as soon as I speak, I'm going to be called a bigot, a hateful person. I'm going to be accused of being a part of the Fourth Reich and, you know, whatever else is coming next. How do we, there's this tension. And so it's very easy to go, hey, love God, love people, help others do the same. But loving people is difficult. But we're supposed to look different. And we're supposed to love people and treat people differently. So Paul, in Romans 12 gives us some very applicable words that I want to read to you. And then we'll come back and spend a little bit of time in them. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Paul says this, 
He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, this is an Old Testament quote, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love passing scripture like this because you don't, you, don't, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to get it. You don't, you don't need me to come through and go, well, let me tell you what Paul's really saying here. He's given it to us pretty clearly. He's given us some just like, like bite-sized sentences that says, hey, if you're going to love people, here's what that looks like. But he gives us some things that, that, are, that are difficult to do. And so here's what we're going to do. We're not going through the, <coughs> the whole passage sentence by sentence. I want to challenge you this week is to meditate on this this week. Each morning, get up, do, do your quiet time, whatever you regularly do, but come back to this passage of Scripture and just maybe meditate on one of those verses each day or meditate on the whole passage. We're going to look at just a few things I'm going to pull out and that I want to address, but this gives us some very practical tips on how to, not tips, instruction on how to love people. One of the first things he says in verse 14 is this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So, so let's talk practicality. And I'm actually, we're going to record on Wednesday because I'm going to talk to you guys in, in a way that I'm going to switch some things up with teenagers because I want to talk to us who are adults that just came out of a, a heated political debate. Well, actually, we're not out of it. We're still in the middle of it. There's still people that are, that are upset. Now, here, here's the deal. If you are, if you are a Republican and, or, or, or a Trump supporter, most likely you felt on Tuesday like eight years of terror has ended. You know, that, that, that was a, the Obama administration is over. We have victory. And now the world will go back to functioning like God intended in the Garden of Eden. I mean, that, that's, you know, it's ridiculous. But, you know, that, that's, a, that's, that's a, the thought. You know, if, you, if, you're the, if you're the Democrat side, if, you're, if you were the Clinton supporter, well, your feelings, and those have been expressed much more on Facebook from the side of the law, but it, you know, in social media, it's like the world is coming to an end. We, we have elected someone who hates people, uh, who, who, who is going to ruin America. And so what's happening in our social sphere, and we don't really do this face-to-face around the water cooler. We do this behind the screen of a computer. We respond in a way that is the exact opposite of blessing those who curse you or persecute you. It's like, you know, well, hey, you should have seen this coming. And, you know, and, and, and like if you were the Trump supporter and it's like people are responding, it's not loving. And on the flip side, it's not loving. Here's what I'm saying. I feel hypocritical. I've gotten drawn into some of these conversations. I don't even care about politics. Like it's just, it's, you get sucked in. So, so here's what it looks like. If, if you're a, a Trump supporter, what it looks like when you're hearing somebody bellyache over a loss because they were a, a Clinton supporter, your, your response is you bless somebody who persecutes you or bless somebody that curses you is, is when you lean in and, and you find some of the positives. And you go, hey, you know what's going to be what, one thing that may be difficult? It may be difficult now for uh, a, a Republican president who's had no you know, 
world of politics. He's been a business person. for years. It may be difficult for him to kind of catch up on the learning curve of the ins and outs of, of D.C. and how that works. Man, that's something that, that Hillary Clinton would have known well because her husband had been president. She didn't know how those things work. And so, so we've elected a president. Man, that, that's going to be a learning curve. And man, Hillary would have done really well at that. And on the flip side, if you're the Hillary supporter, you, know, you, you can look and, and go, you know what? I don't know what's all going to happen. And, and, and it's not the person I want. But, but here's a guy who, who knows how to put people around a table and make business happen. So I'm going to hope that that skill set that Trump has of, of putting right people in right places is going to be a great thing for our country. And I'm really glad that he does that well. That diffuses all kinds of uh, problems, fights. All of a sudden, I'm, just, I'm blessing you while you're persecuting me. I'm blessing you while you curse me. It's really hard for somebody to stay on their, uh, on their platform of anger. And so Paul says, hey, if you want to love people well, bless those who persecute you. <clears throat> bless those who curse you. See, we grew up, you've told your kids this, I've told my kids this. If you don't have something nice to say, yeah, that's not right at all. That's not biblical. It's not, that's not what it says here. Paul doesn't say, hey, if you don't have anything to say, nice, don't say anything at all. He basically says, hey, if you don't have anything nice to say, figure out how to say something nice. <laughs> right? That's what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Somebody's persecuting me. I don't have nice things to say about them. Paul doesn't say, hey, if somebody's persecuting you, don't say anything at all. Bless them. Find something nice to say. Look for something that they do well in and say, and lean into that and go, man, thank you for this. Yeah. That, that, that's, a, that's difficult. That's why this is, is hard to do, to love people well. Here's another thing he says in there. In verse, where is it at? Verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let, let me step on some toes for a second. Over the last couple, last year or so, we've heard a lot about black lives matters and all lives matters and blue lives matters. And I'm sure there's probably some other lives that matter. And that is a, a heated discussion, is it not? And it's come about, it's come about because by and large there's been some African Americans in, in our community that have been shot and killed. Not just one or two or three, but several over the course of the last few years. And in a world that has social media and people filming things on their cameras all the time, we hear way more about it than we ever have. And I, I, I would suggest, and I don't want to presuppose that you're in this camp, I just know that an upper socioeconomic Georgetown that is predominantly Caucasian and then Hispanic with, with a very, very few African Americans in our culture, I, I think I can say this safely. We don't see the world the way somebody that grew up in an African American community sees the world. We just won't. And here, here's, here's one of the issues. Here's the problems. Here, and here's where I struggle. Being a person who's justice oriented, there have been some some people, some African-Americans that have been killed by a police officer that the officer was deemed just in what he was doing. <clears throat> the person attacked, they came after him. And, and some, of, some of those news stories have generated Black Lives Matter. And so some people go, well, hey, you know, the guy was attacking a cop and he was like, you know, hopped up on drugs. What do you expect the cop to do? And now you're all mad. But there's also been some innocent people who've been killed because, because a police officer who, who wasn't prepared to be a police officer. And that's not all police officers. There's some bad police officers. There's some bad youth ministers. There's some bad teachers. There's some bad accountants. There's some, you know, every, every industry has that. You have some guys that have made a, a poor decision 
or, or in the heat of, heat of the moment made a decision that ended up being the wrong decision, an innocent person's life got taken. But what happens is, is we start getting into the debate and we start wanting to go, well, this guy, don't tell me that, that black lives matter and get all mad because this guy got killed because this guy was a criminal. He's got a rap sheet that's, the, that's a, a mile long. He's been in and out of jail multiple times and he attacked a cop. Now, let me tell you this, like where I would come from, my, my, natural, my natural self says things like this. I will never be shot by a police officer because I'm going to do what a police officer says. And so some of us go, yeah, that's right. But someone's child died. Child might have been 30 years old, but there's a mom who, whether her son was a criminal or not, lost his life. And she went and buried the son that she birthed and raised and put him in the ground never to see him again. While white America goes, well, he was a criminal, so oh well. But if your child grew up and made poor decisions and they got in trouble with the law and was shot and killed, at the funeral as you buried your child, would you step up to the eulogy and go, a criminal, they deserved it? Of course not. But we've lost the ability to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And as, and as a follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to look markedly different. And what disturbs me is I don't until I read passages like this and the Spirit of God starts to convict me and goes, hey, you're an idiot. You, you want to make a political commentary while someone's burying their child, call a timeout and weep with those who weep for a little bit. Why don't you come along and say, you know what? Maybe we have a system in America that's not educating those in some areas of our country as well as in other areas of our country. Maybe we should lean in as we weep together and go, you know what? We need to address some issues of fatherlessness and we need to address some issues of family. But instead, it's easy to get behind the computer screen and say what we want to say or gather with the people who think and see the world just like we do and lose the ability to weep with those who weep. That's how we look markedly different. He says this in verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. That word harmony, it means to be like-minded or to understand. So let me say this. So I told you we're not going to laugh a whole lot. There's a gentleman who's made the national con conscious. His, his name's Colin Kaepernick. Not, not a fan. He's a San Francisco 49er. There's no reason to be a fan when you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, right? <laughs> I mean, he's like the enemy. And I'm the son of a soldier. And I'm a son who laid in bed as a sophomore in high school and listened to a radio announce that, that Desert Storm, the, the ground war was going to start and knew that my father was getting into a helicopter and he was going to fly into enemy territory to defend the rights of people who were being tyrannized by a terrible government. And I can remember after 9-11, being the son of a soldier, 
I remember weeping as the national anthem was sung. And then I get a guy who makes millions of dollars to throw a piece of leather around, say I'm going to kneel and not respect the flag that my father risked his life for, that my grandfather risked his life for, that my father-in-law risked his life for. Right? I mean, you feel the tension there? But Scripture says we're to live in harmony. We're to be like-minded. We're to understand where the person's coming from. And so the tension for me is the Scripture says, you know what? You need to try to lean in and understand where he's coming from. You don't have to agree with it. He may be wrong. He may be right. But you need to, as a believer, live in harmony with people. You need to be like-minded. You need to understand. You need to be able to at least say, hey, I've heard you. But the tension for me is I don't care to hear him. Does that make sense? I mean, I do now because the Scripture's like convicting me. I'm talking about like, you know, 24 hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what Scripture's saying. You got, you, you, you're going to love people, you're going to look markedly different? What if a believer was able, when everybody's talking about how, how, how ignorant Colin Kaepernick is, and can you believe that he didn't even vote, and, 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 and uh, that a believer can come in and go, you know what, I want to hear what he has to say, because his experience is different than mine. I may not agree with it, but I at least want to hear. I want to try to understand where he's coming from. I want to know what happened in his life that was traumatic enough that made him want to become the villain of half of America. That's a pretty traumatic event, whatever that was that happened. I'd like to know what it is so that we can make sure that doesn't happen anymore. To live in harmony with people. Last thing, you can read through the rest of this passage of Scripture this week, and, and I hope you will. But he says this, verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning you've got some responsibility here, you go to the extent that you can, Live peaceably with all. Now, let's put this in context for a second. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth to the church in Rome, to Roman Christians. Paul is going to be imprisoned later in Rome because of his faith. The emperor at the time that this was written in Rome is a man named Nero. And somewhere between five and ten years from Paul writing this letter to the Christians at Rome, Nero who later is going to take his own life. Nero, who history kind of paints this picture of a little bit off the wall. Nero, we believe as best we can tell, set fire to Rome so he could just watch it burn. And three quarters of the city burned. And as the Romans realized and began to lay the blame at Nero's feet, the crazy emperor, what Nero did is he shifted all the blame and said, you know, it wasn't me. It was this new group of people called their followers of the way. They were the the first church. They were the Christians. And Paul writes this letter in a culture. It's a little bit previous to when all this happened, but you can see the animosity already laid in place that they would take Christians and wrap them up and sew them up into animal skins and send them out to be chased and eaten by wild animals. That's what Nero did. Crucified Christians. He'd round them up and he would put them on stakes put them along the road, and light them on fire to use them as human torches as people went about the day or the night. Again, this happened a little bit after the letter, but you don't go from there without some animosity building. 
Paul, Paul, Paul's not writing to Bible Belt, Texas. He's writing to people where Christianity, where you're not really liked, somewhat vilified. You're seen as ignorant, backwards, uneducated. And Paul says this, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You figure out how to love people well. So I, I don't know, I, I, what I'm hoping is you read through this passage of scripture this week that, that, this, that the Lord's gonna bring some things out for you. But I'm just gonna tell you some things that God has brought out for me. And maybe there's some application for you, maybe not. For me, I'm, I'm, I'm making some conscious decisions about social media. Of not using sarcasm and humor to post things, to not to respond to people who believe differently unless I wanna send them a private message with integrity that says, hey, tell me, tell me why you think this way and why you feel this way because I, really, I want to listen and I'm not going to try to convince you. <clears throat> one, one, of, one of the kids I mentored is a pastor now. I mentored him years ago. And he just led his church in a, in, a, in a direction that is very different than what most Baptist churches believe. And they've been removed from the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas because of the church's stance on some views. And I look at him, I go, I don't, I don't understand I don't get it. Theolo- the- theologically, I can't, I can't even begin to understand why you believe what you believe. But as I, I've been following just this storyline, I've been watching his church members post all over his Facebook account, thank you, thank you, we're so glad you're here and all this stuff. And I, I don't agree with them at all theologically. Not, not even a gray issue. But, but here's what it looks like for me just in dealing with this Holy Spirit, just leaning to me. I sent him a message earlier this week. And the message said this. Hey, I know you're going through some crazy things right now. And I know your church is making some decision things that are putting you in the, in the, in the media. But as I read through your Facebook post, I see, I see your church. I see the people that, that, that you're shepherding. And they feel like you're loving them well. And I want to applaud you for that. I don't agree with what all, at all why they're applauding him well. But he's trying to lead well. He's trying to shepherd people. And the people that he's leading love him again. I think there's some issues of truth and things like that. But that is a positive thing. Because there's a lot of pastors out there that the church members hate. <laughs> and he's not one. And I'm praying that God would begin to change his heart and the heart of this church so that he could be a person who's leading well, relationally, theologically, in every realm and era. era I mean, every realm and, and section of what he's doing. And it, was, it was hard for me. It would be much easier to go, you know what, unfriend, I don't want to see it anymore. That's not loving people well. So God's working on me in that area. Second thing is this. It's trying to be more intentional, and maybe this is for you too. To be more intentional about blessing people who don't see the, the world the way I see it. Blessing people who might curse me. Now here, I want you to hear me say this. If you get a text of encouragement from me sometime this week, that doesn't mean that I think that you're in this group of people that's cursing me, okay? I couldn't even think of anybody that, that, that I feel that, that I think is cursing me. So. But just being more intentional about it. To go, you know what? I'm gonna be Jesus to this person. I speak truth, but I'm gonna love them well. I'm going to close with this and let you talk. In 2002, a survey was done in India. India is the most populated Muslim country in the world. In 2002, this was what uh, Muslims in India felt about Americans in the United States. 
had a favorable view of the U.S. 48% had a very, very unfavorable view. So almost one out of two Indians, Muslims, had a very unfavorable view of America. That was 2003. In 2005, a tsunami hit the coast of India and disaster struck. And all kinds of aid, all kinds of humanitarian resources came from the United States. And in 2006, they did the same study, and here's what they found. 44% of Muslims in India had a favorable view of the U.S. That tripled the number from 15%. It went from half having a very unfavorable view to half saying, we like the U.S., and the unfavorable, very unfavorable, had dropped all the way down to 13%, almost one in 10. A report out of India said that at that time, bin Laden was still there. It said that the support for bin Laden among Muslims and Indian, Muslims in India had dropped to an all-time low because we loved as a country. Because we said, you have hurt, we have resources, we'll apply our resources to your hurt, and it changed the way people saw our country. And I just wonder, if we start making decisions that bring glory to God, if we start using our time as a kingdom commodity, and if we start treating people in a way that makes us look markedly different than the rest of the world, I wonder what would happen as the gospel begins to take root throughout our communities. This week is families. Talk about loving people. It's hard. Practice at home. Challenge some of the ways you think about people. Listen to people's stories. Be willing to say, my experience isn't their experience, and I at least want to hear so I know how to love. Let me pray for you and let you talk. God, I hate being a hypocrite. I want to love better. I want to listen better. I want people to see your love coming through me and not me. God, I pray that's all of us. Amen. Take a few minutes, talk, see what you think. Go back to Romans 12.